welcome to Aeon's Pension Podcast. I'm Emily Maguire, and this is a first of a series of six podcasts that I'll be hosting covering a range of topics that affect the investments of UK pension funds in the current environment. For this first one, and joining me today is Maggie Williams, pensions writer and researcher. Hello, Maggie. Hi, Emily. So Maggie has been carrying out some independent research that we'll discuss on this podcast. But let me first just set the scene. So remember back to the start of 2020, and at Aon, we'd identified five key areas that would be high on UK pension fund investment agenda. And they were governance, investing for the end game, responsible investment, long-term targets and the new funding code, and finally, cost and transparency. But 2020 has been a phenomenal year. Things are changing rapidly. I mean, it's just a matter of months where virtual working has become the norm. We've all embraced technology. Investment markets have been incredibly volatile. And on top of that, UK pension funds are facing increased regulation. And for many, the job list is never ending. But these five themes are still hugely relevant. And some of the key questions that we'll be exploring today is what has changed because of COVID? So Maggie, perhaps you can tell me a little bit about the research you conducted and who you spoke to. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Emily. So uh, I interviewed 20 pension scheme decision makers uh, across June and July this year. And these were a mix of member nominated and professional trustees, third party evaluators, uh, pension managers, CIOs and CEOs of pension funds. And we also had a great mix of defined benefit and defined contribution experience in there. So I spoke to each of them for around about an hour each, and we discussed a a mix of the topics that Emily's outlined uh, that affect current investment trends. And uh, once we'd uh, completed those interviews, I analysed the findings, uh, looked for the common themes and some of the trends we'd seen, some of the common challenges that are facing decision makers across the board. So the great joy in this is what we've seen in the research are some real world insights from people that are out there uh, face to face with these issues at the moment. And I'd actually like to just take the opportunity, if I can, to say a massive thank you to everyone who gave their time and took part in the research. It was hugely appreciated, gave us some really invaluable insights. uh, And I I know that uh, some of the people that we spoke to were facing some enormous uh, challenges and decisions at that time. So we're really, really grateful for the time that they gave us. Well, thank you, Maggie. That's uh, invaluable insights. I'm really keen to hear uh, what everybody had to say. So Perhaps if we could just start uh, with an interesting one about about governance and and really how is how is COVID affecting pension schemes decision making as we're all uh, in this virtual world? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, certainly the the way that decisions are made and the way that uh, trustee boards have operated over the last few months have been uh, very different. And I think there's probably a lot of short and longer term uh, impacts on that. So clearly in the short term, governance methods have changed because they've had to. It's quite telling that pretty much everyone I spoke to for the research was happy to have that call over Zoom or Teams or something similar. That's now a sort of business as usual tool. And I don't think that would have been the case a year ago. And obviously those same tools are now the basis for trustee meetings. But that idea of the quarterly day long approach just isn't working anymore online. Trustees, I found, were opting for more shorter, more focused meetings. And also, they were getting used to convening calls at short notice to deal with something rather than waiting for the usual quarterly cycle. 
That's been really interesting how agendas for items have been much more focused. Calls might last a couple of hours, for example, rather than all day. There's also a note of caution within there as well, because trustees, some of the people we spoke to were, you know, keen to make sure that everything they needed to address was done properly over video conferencing. For example, some people said it was quite tricky to explain more complicated concepts or make sure that everyone around the table really understood what was uh, going on rather than doing the online equivalent of sitting quietly at the back. But I, I think when we look at governance in a broader way and in terms of the sort of bigger context and strategy, no one was turning around and saying this thing that we've been working towards for last year, this, uh, this approach we've had for the last five years isn't working or is wrong. Uh, nobody was radically changing anything that they got planned. It might have been more about timing, for example, or simply stepping back and saying, is this decision the right thing to do right now? That applied both to sort of an end game planning from an investment point of view and to other investment decision in the portfolio. Excellent. Perhaps if we could pick up on that uh, end game scene and end game planning, because clearly over March, uh, we had big shocks in investment markets and different schemes are going to find themselves in very different positions. When you were speaking to other people, were, were you seeing that the end game had changed or are you seeing that actually everything was on hold or, or actually business as usual? Yeah, I don't think anyone was really saying that their end game had changed. Some of the components of that might have changed. For example, some employer covenants have been very severely hit by the COVID pandemic, you know, pretty much overnight, some incredibly strong covenants have weakened significantly. You know, we, we've also seen areas like sort of deficit repayment contributions put on hold for short periods of time. There's actually had the effect of tipping some schemes into being cash flow negative in the short term, for example. Uh, but there was a lot of wait and see around that. But also most people were comfortable that the decision that they've made for the long term for their scheme, for example, to, to move to buyout was still the right thing to do but they might need to change the timing of that, for example, or think about um, the amount of risk in the portfolio, perhaps to balance up uh, some uh, weaknesses in the employer covenant. But I, I don't think anyone was saying it's, you know, what, what they've been doing to date was wrong, for example. No, absolutely. That's very much in line with what we've been seeing with clients as well. If you think back to March uh, this year when markets were falling like a stone and, and things were uh, changing very rapidly, as I, I know top priority was just to make sure the operational aspects were all functioning properly within the pension scheme. And now as we've gone through the summer, um, many schemes have been taking that opportunity to, see, to take a step back and reflect on how they've done, are they off track, what actions need to be taken to get the investment strategy back on track to get towards those longer term goals. And, and as you say, for some, it may be just taking a little bit longer to doing that and looking at taking advantage of some of the investment opportunities out there at the moment. Yes, I think I agree that, yeah. It, it was interesting around investment decision making as well as broader end game planning that you know, most people might have stepped back, said, do we really want to still go ahead and transact in the way that we've been discussing? But for the most part, people did decide to continue uh, that way. Another interesting angle around this is, of course, investment governance and whether 
schemes are, are thinking about fiduciary management, for example, for a little more, because even though trustees have become perhaps a little more nimble because they've had to uh, with uh, video conferencing calls and more regular check-ins, uh, it may still be that then, you know, there, there's a, so much going on in the market and so many uh, both challenges and opportunities and just a basic changing landscape out there at the moment that, that you know, they feel they may need more support with making those rapid investment decisions. Yeah, uh, yeah, particularly in these volatile market conditions, that ability to move a portfolio around to take advantage of those opportunities has made a significant difference to the outcomes of schemes over this. Appreciate it's a short period of time, but through weathering the storm that really pension funds have faced. I, I was just wanting to explore a little bit more. You say we've learned as, as pension funds have, uh, have looked back or, or thought and learned about their experiences over the last six months or so, what do you think they would change, perhaps in their governance, for the new better worlds that we'd like to aspire to? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think that's a great question. A lot of people have responded very positively to the idea of more shorter trustee meetings, as we've mentioned. Most were hopeful that they would continue their governance in that way. In terms of other changes, I mean, a lot, I think, of what's been on trustees' agendas has been driven by uh, forthcoming requirements from the pensions regulator. And I'm not sure that has changed because we've got a lot of compliance around responsible investment, for example, uh, and also the forthcoming DB funding code, uh, which is definitely on the got to do list rather than the want to do list. That is very much occupying schemes thinking at the moment, no matter how they're uh, organising the meetings to discuss it. Yes, indeed. Increased regulation, uh, I fear, is a uh, is something that is here to stay. Uh, and indeed, I was, it's interesting to hear how respondents were feeling about the increased regulation and whether it was seen as a positive uh, step forward in the management of pension funds or whether it's more complexity and compliance for the sake of it. Did, did that come through in, in some of your interviews? Yeah, what well, was a lovely quote from uh, one of the people that I spoke to, you know, that, that actually compliance doesn't necessarily always equal good governance. So simply to be a compliance scheme doesn't always mean that the, the standards of governance are, you know, a, a, as they could be and that the scheme is being served in the best way. So there's definitely a balance to be found there. And uh, most people involved with schemes would say that the, the requirements of regulation have increased substantially over the last few years. Two of the main areas that we had there were around responsible investment, requirements to report on ESG and statements of investment principles and create implementation statements of both DB and DC schemes. And also the DB funding code, uh, which is going to shape schemes investment strategies in the future. So I think everyone was feeling the pressure of work. That's nothing new. And obviously, we were pretty much still in the eye of the storm with the pandemic when we spoke. For the most part, a People felt that the new regulation that was coming was generally good for schemes and, you know, heralded a positive direction for the most part. That's good. And, and, and interesting, I'm keen to hear about uh, regulation around responsible investing, because, I mean, to be fair, whether you call it socially responsible investment or responsible investing, ESG, it has been on the agenda for pension schemes for, for 20 years, but uh, it appears that only in the last year or so that things are starting to change. Perhaps you could share some of your thoughts uh, around that, the things that you heard. Yes, the, the responsible investment was a really interesting area in the research because there was such a polarity 
and variation in the way that people had approached it within uh, their their work. At one end of the scale, you had some schemes that were incredibly engaged, basically like a stick of rock. ESG was written through everything that they did uh, investment-wise. It was part of the kind of fundamental fabric of their scheme. Now, at the opposite end of the scale, there was still, I think, some doubt about whether it's a, a core part of fiduciary duty to actually look at responsible investment and also still confusion over what that means. There's, you know, we've had a so many different terms for this over the years and so many different ways of approaching it that, you know, I, th- I think there's still a lot of confusion in the market. Also interesting, talking to those schemes that have put this in place and where it really is part of the bedrock of what they do. It's not an overnight process by any means, and it's not a single step or a flip of a switch. It's about really breaking it down into a series of core tasks that effectively form a journey and then working through that journey. And what I think is a really interesting thing to think about for the future is that there's some great experience out there in those more knowledgeable schemes and how that's transferred over into situations where people are still perhaps struggling a little bit with the the reasons behind it and how they can shift their scheme to adopt a more responsible approach. So it sounds as though that there is a lot more to be done in this area. And actually, we we have a responsibility to share best practice and, and find a platform to help a, a number of schemes out there to change the way they do things and think about responsible investing in a holistic way. I think there's a challenge on for consultants and, and for the industry as a whole. And, and that's definitely one of the topics that we'd like to pick up in a future podcast when we will will focus on responsible investing with Aon's head of responsible investing, Tim Manuel. So that'd be a, a later podcast, but I think really a topic that we need to do more on. Yeah, it definitely are really interesting parts that came out from the research. And also there's quite an interesting uh, ESG and um, has an interesting COVID angle on it as well. I think, you know, we've seen very mixed behaviours from companies over the course of the pandemic. And, you know, the S and the G of ESG have really been in focus as a result of that. Can you perhaps explain a little bit more about that? That's quite interesting. And, and often we just uh, climate change is in the headlines and it'd be interesting to hear on the, the S and the G side. We've seen stories, of, you know, across the board in the papers about some employers who've be- behaved incredibly well to their staff, have, you know, been really had a positive workplace culture has really shone through. And then at the other end, we've seen furlough fraud starting to be reported and some very contentious decisions still around executive pay and the relationship between executive pay and employee pay more more broadly. And, I, you know, I think this is the, the, the S, certainly the social aspect of uh, environmental, social and governance. And, you know, arguably that is an offshoot of the G. I mean, if, if you're getting the governance of a company right, then the way that they pay their staff and behave towards their staff will be a part of that. But it was quite interesting that I heard from a couple of uh, commentators that they this is something that they are going to be asking their asset managers about next year, how they're taking that into account. And then one of the things, what surprised you most about the research that you'd carried out as the particular theme there? That everyone was still standing after <laughs> the last few months, actually. I mean, quite seriously, the durability of pensions industry generally and, you know, the, the trustees that were on the call was was really remarkable because we've, we've talked the wide range of responses on responsible investment was a surprise to me, I think, because it's been such a, com- a conversation for such a long time now that while there are some really outstanding examples, there's still such a lot of work to do on that. I mean, maybe this is 
perhaps it's not a surprise really, but uh, given the amount of profile that's been given to uh, scheme consolidation, consolidators in the press and, and in the industry more generally, it's interesting to note that that's not really getting onto the agenda for schemes yet. I mean, it's probably too soon, and certainly trustee boards have had a whole sea of other fish to fry over the last few months. So maybe they need more time to start to think about the different models out there, how this fits into their end game planning, and what role consolidators will play in the in the DB market more generally over time. Yeah, sounds like one for watch this space in uh, 2021 as um, trustees uh, tackle with more pressing issues at this current time. So just talking about regulation, another aspect of regulation that uh, pension fund trustees do have to contend with is thinking about cost transparency and reporting on that. So this has been talked about in the industry for quite some time. Clearly, there is benefit in having a transparent and full disclosure on all costs that uh, pension funds face. I've certainly heard some of the challenges in collecting the data. Is, is, is that echoed in the conversations that you'd had? Yeah, very much so. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, cost, transparency, understanding what you're paying uh, and what it's being, what you're paying for are a fundamental part of good governance. And I think most people that I spoke to really saw that and understood it. Some people had already taken quite a lot of action to better understand the costs in their portfolio and some of them had had really substantial savings as a result of doing so. Others felt that perhaps the, 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 the governance burden involved in actually getting to the bottom of those costs and then also analysing them because it's one thing having the data on costs, it's quite another analysing that and then coming out with some findings and some core actions for the scheme was still quite a challenging overhead for them so there's definitely some work to do around that. And whilst there's pressure on cost, and we, whilst we've seen some great initiatives in the industry, like the Cost Transparency Initiative, there's still no mandated way uh, for people to collect and compare and analyse costs. And I think people are still struggling with that ability to compare like with like out there. So that's definitely still a gap and still something that uh, schemes are working with. It's also feeling in some contexts that greater emphasis on costs and transparency would definitely help the industry as a whole, the kind of aggregated pensions industry. But some schemes would be greater winners than other others within that. And of course, on the DC side, uh, there's, there's already been pressure over time to report on costs, both in the, in the course of a, a year and over the cost of a, a member's lifetime of savings with the scheme in the chair statement. So perhaps DC schemes are that little bit more familiar with doing this already than, than DB schemes are. And, and have, was there experience that this had been a positive step for the DC schemes and a positive outcome through the transparency? People feel the principle of it is. I mean, with DC, the value for members is absolutely critical. You know, this is really directly affecting the size of someone's pensions pot. So the DC schemes that we spoke to were very much cognizant of that and the responsibility that they have to members for that. Whether the chair's statement is the right framework for reporting that in a meaningful way to members was a, a moot point, I think. A lot of schemes perceive the chair's statement as a, as a compliance document. And again, I think it's where that interesting point between compliance and governance comes in. Most people felt that you actually needed a different approach and a different document again 
to be able to explain that in a more meaningful way to members. Yes, it's the challenge between being compliant and then actually driving uh, some positive change rather than just a pure tick box exercise. And I guess that comes with a lot of the regulation and your point earlier that's the difference between good governance and good compliance really uh, comes through in lots of things. Just picking up on, so in terms of your research, you've obviously talked in lots of ways with different market participants. Uh, and clearly some of this is focused on defined benefit pension schemes when we're talking about endgame. But clearly a lot is irrelevant for both uh, DB and DC defined contribution schemes as well as defined benefit schemes. Do you think that, is there any areas that uh, things are moving in different directions? I don't think they're moving necessarily in different directions, but they're certainly moving at different paces uh, in different things. Again, coming back to responsible investment, uh, I think DC schemes, not wishing to generalise, but I, I think certainly in the schemes that I saw were more aware of responsible investment, their members' potential responses to it. We had a couple of schemes where they'd gone out and asked the members really quite comprehensively about their views. And I think they're that little bit closer to the member and therefore that little bit more aware of how responsible investment affects members' savings when you're talking about sustainability and returns over time and also individuals' personal beliefs around that. And similarly, I would say, as I mentioned, with the cost and transparency angle, DC schemes, again, are that bit much, that bit closer to the member and the member's needs around that. I mean, as I say, that's not to say that DB schemes are not taking notice of those things, but I think there has been a need to move things more quickly in DC schemes on that basis. Absolutely. And just finally, we haven't really touched a lot on the long-term targets and the new funding code that's that, that's out there. And uh, and clearly, as we've gone through, uh, the consultation on that has, has been extended. But what were the general thoughts of interviews? Yeah, I mean, as you, as you say, this is something that uh, certainly has been, to, to some extent, a victim of COVID itself, um, in that the uh, consultation period for the DB funding code has been extended, and therefore we, you know, we, we're still waiting on the next steps for that. The majority of schemes were aware of it. There, there were a few people that were still coming up to speed uh, with what's required under the funding code. I think for some, they felt that this was mirroring what they were doing already. So they were already looking at lowering risk levels uh, in the portfolio, thinking about the long-term reliance on the uh, sponsor covenant and the like. I think some of the questions raised were more around how well it would serve open schemes and also those schemes where either endgame is a very long way off or they're looking at self-sufficiency and whether that movement towards a lower risk portfolio is always right in those conditions. So there were a few questions about how well it would serve schemes more generally. But I guess we've got the bespoke and the fast track elements within the code. So these are the two ways that uh, trust can approach this with the regulator. So hopefully the more bespoke regimes will work for those schemes. So it's definitely something that everyone felt they, you know, they need to work on and it you know, will be a priority next year for them in making sure that they've got what the, the regulator requires. Um, I think another area that's going to be interesting is those uh, schemes that are 
in the process of negotiating valuations with the regulator at the moment uh, and, and how that will affect them longer term once the once the code does come in. Absolutely. I think uh, um, we're going to be in this period of volatility for quite some time, but Certainly having a long-term target, recognising that funding the pension scheme beyond the current technical provisions, and ultimately, whether you're open to to future accrual or not, ultimately it is a de-risking journey, but that pace of de-risking is clearly different uh, pension funds in different circumstances will play out for them. Perhaps if I could just touch on, um, just go back to an area that we talked about before and around governance. And uh, I wondered whether you had, uh, if anybody shared their experience around how fiduciary management had worked for them during this period. Clearly, many schemes are thinking about fiduciary management or indeed doing a mandatory tender for the appointment of a fiduciary manager. And it would be interesting to hear how schemes have coped through this period if they had used fiduciary management. The the professional trustees in particular that we saw in this research said that they were seeing interest in fiduciary management grow and that they were mostly looking towards full mandate appointments there. So rather than taking uh, an individual element, an individual sleeve within the investment strategy, they were looking at allocating all of the investment strategy to a fiduciary management. And uh, I think there was a general feeling that the volatility that we've seen this year, plus what we might expect to see next year, could make fiduciary management look like a a more more, uh, attractive option for more schemes. We saw a similar kind of level around after the financial crisis in uh, 2008, 2009, that that acceptance that the knowledge you need and the uh, scale that you need uh, in investment and the flexibility, the nimbleness, basically, to take advantage of opportunities in the market is very, very hard for a trustee board operating alone to do. I mean, the, the governance budget, is, you know, the governance budget and burden is, is quite significant. So I think we would certainly see uh, more schemes considering it. And I know there was quite a lot of appetite, as I say, from the professional trustee angle in particular to encourage schemes to consider this. That's interesting. And I know you you interviewed a number of third party evaluators as well who see the full market on this. Presumably, were, were they seeing increased desire from their clients to look at fiduciary management? Yes, they were saying that they were seeing an increase in interest in that. Yeah, definitely seeing that from the third party evaluators as well. And is there any particular schemes that are more uh, where fiduciary management would be more appropriate for or is this becoming applicable for everybody? A lot comes down to resourcing within the scheme itself. You know, I mean, if you're looking at very, very large schemes where they may have their own uh, in-house investment set up, perhaps that's that's less appealing or perhaps the individual sleeves becomes more appealing. But I think the smaller schemes in particular, where there is limited governance time, where there is limited uh, budget for that, governance budget that is, the idea of being able to access those ideas and speed of decision making in the same way that one of the larger schemes could with their own in-house setup certainly becomes very appealing. Clearly, there's been an awful lot going on through 2020 for pension fund trustees to cope with. And and we see governance uh, budgets needing to expand over as we go forward and into 2021. So Maggie, where do you see pension funds spending their governance budget and and focusing their time? There's an add-on to the the fiduciary management uh, consideration here that if you are a scheme with limited governance time, and let's face it, many are, then that decision-making about at the fund manager level is 
quite a challenge to do. I mean, one of the uh, professional trustees that we spoke to gave the analogy about it's making like making the decision between buying the Aldi cornflakes and the Sainsbury's cornflakes, and that perhaps that's not the area where trustees will need to put their governance budget and their focus. So being able to outsource that to a fiduciary manager, third party to implement becomes a part of good governance then as well. The uh, implementation of the funding code is is going to be a, a a challenging area next year. I mean, even for schemes that have got the basics of the, um, the funding code requirements underway, there is um, still quite a bit of work to do in making sure that it's in the right format for what the pensions regulator will require them to report on. So I think there'll be quite a lot of work to do there. Obviously, we've got the first year of reporting on uh, responsible investment implementation statements for DB schemes in particular. So that's going to occupy quite a lot of thought. Uh, And then some of the areas that we've talked around, around sort of cost management and transparency, which again comes down to general good governance, uh, but I think will continue to be a focus for schemes next year. Thank you. And perhaps do you see there are any obstacles for those decision makers when they're looking at their governance budgets for next year? Again, there's so much changing in the market at the moment and so much changing investment-wise in particular. I mean, we really still have no idea how markets will perform next year, uh, not just in terms of equities, but also in the credit markets as the wider implications of the pandemic on companies become known. We're going to see that shift around covenant again, probably going to play out a lot in 2021. So there are so many different areas that trustees will need to focus on next year. And that's against the backdrop of general scheme decision making and continuing towards end game uh, and and elements like that. So I I think it's going to be a really busy year. No, thank you. A a lot for people to cope with and get through. So thank you, Maggie, for spending time with us today. The research and the insights that you've provided is fascinating. There's really so much on the agendas for pension funds in the UK and it's really laid down the challenge to how we can help trustees focus on the topics that are important to them and bringing practical solutions in the five focus areas that we've talked about. And I'll be really pleased to delve deeper into each of those on the next five podcasts that we'll be looking at each in turn. So thank you very much. Thanks, Emily. I've really enjoyed our talk today.